Good to see some of you again. There's some familiar faces out here that I haven't seen forever. And some of you have no idea who I am. That's all right. That's all right. I'll preach to you anyways. I don't mind yelling at strangers. It's, it's a fun task. Um, and for those of you that don't know me, I, I, I used to hang here when EBF was in a world of, or actually a building of darkness. Two of them, actually. Uh, back in the wet days, uh, we were in the bottom of an old Marshall Field building on like Church and Sherman, I think is what it was. I remember visiting and uh, didn't know if Jason was trying to create a baptismal or what was going on down there, but uh, just flooded. We didn't have any windows. Then we were hanging out in the theater and I could probably only see like two people in front of me. And now I can see all of you, which is great. Because if you're sleeping in the back, be yell louder and wake you up and uh, that would be good. So it's good to see you. I'm a pastor of Trinity City Church. It's a church plant of Evanston Bible Fellowship. You sent me out. Uh, as uh, John said, I was hanging here a little bit as an intern, a member. Uh, came on for college ministry for a while, then came on as an uh, elder, uh, unpaid, non-vocational elder, and just had a great time. And uh, EBF, I, I love this church. I love your support. I love your prayers. And you're enabling gospel expansion to happen in the Twin Cities right now. We're planting a church in St. Paul, Minnesota, we're kind of right between downtown St. Paul, downtown Minneapolis. We're planning a location that has roughly about 120,000 students from several campuses and, and universities. Actually, the city of St. Paul, now a lot of people know this, is only second to Boston in terms of uh, universities and colleges per capita. So, I mean, you guys kind of know what it's like. You know what it's like to do ministry in an urban area, ministry to college students. We're doing the same thing up there with the church and an area that, that this area just desperately needs a church like EBF. And that's kind of what we're going after. Uh, we've seen a couple baptisms happen so far. Uh, we have uh, about nine other people from our team sitting over here where there's about 30 of us right now. We haven't even started services yet. That happens on 10, 10, 10 at 10 a.m. Uh, I think you'll be able to memorize that. I think that should be good. Um, just come. We're going to have a big party. You're all invited. Seriously. Like, you can come. I'll have bread and wine. We'll have us a party. Um, we'll do some preaching. We'll sing to Jesus together. Pray for his work in the Twin Cities. Pray that his fame and his glory would be known. And you're all invited. I, I, hope, I hope you all show up. Um, because if not, well, there's nothing I can do about it. But um, I do definitely want you to be there. Um, we're going we're gonna to preach from 1 John. Um, I think you're preaching through this book of the Bible, so I get to continue on in that series. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 11 through 24. 1 John chapter 3, 11 through 24. If I look a little lazy-eyed and glazed, it's because me and my team were up until about, what, 1 a.m. last night, eating Chicago-style dogs and checking out downtown. You know... Do you know all the things I love about Chicago? We're going to hit up the, the deep dish pizza later because, yeah, Chicago people know how to eat. I mean, this you guys do it up right. I work with somebody from New York uh, back in St. Paul, and we always debate which has the better pizza. And he's just like, you can't call yours pizza. It's like more like a hot dish. And, uh, yeah, I just pray that the Lord will open his eyes. Uh, I think someday that will happen. It will be good. First John chapter 3, starting with verse 11. Let me just read the text out loud. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. We're going to go all the way to 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 
Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commands abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, we desperately need you here to open your word for us. Lord, we long for your presence. We want to be exposed to you. Lord, we come to church because we want to get to know you better. We come to church because we want to encounter as a community, as a corporate community together, the living God who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who is today still living, seated at the right hand of you, Father. Lord, we've come to worship today the risen Christ. And Lord, would you come now and speak to us in your word. Lord, let this word that you have for us through your servant John, be preached now and change us, Lord. We want to, to be exposed to you so that we might be changed and that we go out being, being, encountering God and being more like your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. So we invite you here. We know that you're here, Lord. But Lord, may you make yourself known now in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonathan Edwards is a, is a favorite theologian of mine. Uh, he was a Puritan uh, back in the, the history when the Great Awakening was happening. He wrote an uh, 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 article called uh, Distinguishing Marks of True Work of the Spirit of God. And he basically gives five marks or five ways to know that you're a Christian. And I love Edwards. I mean, he probably wouldn't be the best guy to hang out with because he just ate very little and he didn't exercise and he just read and studied all the time. I mean, I like a greasy burger every once in a while. I like to kind of be more extroverted. But the brother still blesses me to this day because, I mean, he writes such deep and God-centered truths. This is what Jonathan Edwards says about five ways to kind of know that you're a Christian. Five ways to kind of know that you're a Christian. First, you love Jesus. First thing, you love Jesus. You adore Jesus Christ. You have a passion for the resurrected Savior. Two, you hate sin. You don't like those things and the affections that you had that used to take you away from the path of life that led you to Jesus Christ and back to the path of death. You don't like those things that used to kill you. You don't like those things that used to be your idols that had false promises and there were false gods. You hate sin. You love God's Word. You cherish the fact that the God who made you and put breath in your lungs also is speaking to you through His Word, through His testimony that people have encountered His redemptive acts in history, wrote them down. People were inspired 
to write the very words of God and you love His Word. You love that God doesn't keep to Himself, but He communicates to you. You love truth. You have discernment. You hate things that, that, that are false gospels, that bring false, false uh, uh, propositions in the name of Jesus. You love the truth. You love the revelation of God, and you love the true things that God word, God's words says about reality, about, about your worldview, about why are we here, what is valuable, what is wrong with the world, who's humanity, where is history going, these type of things. You love that scripture encounters these questions with truth. And finally, you love believers. Edwards would say that a mark of a true Christian is that you love believers. Now sure, part of our, a part of the scriptures is in that you also love your enemies. That's in there as well. You, have, you love unbelievers. And this, this is something that, that you, you learn really quickly in church planning and when you're, when you're, when you're act, interacting with those that are in church. You love them. And your, your love is never, ever contingent on if they come to Christ or not. You love them simply because they're made in the image of God. They're not a project. You love them. You love them enough to share the gospel with them. You love them enough to know that if they don't even respond to the gospel, you'll still love them. Because that's how God loves us. He loved us even though we were enemies of His. He loved us even before we, we came to Him for the first time. But certainly, in addition to that, and this might be overlooked just a bit in our culture, is that you love the believers. You love the church. You love the church. That's a distinguishing mark of the Spirit of God working in you. Now, some of you might be here, and I, I know this enough, because I interact enough with maybe some unbelievers that might be here. You're welcome here. We're glad that you're on this journey with us. You might be a little bit more skeptical about, man, last time I went to the church, they just... They're rude, they're obnoxious. I don't, I don't want to love the church. I'm just, I'm just kinda, I just want to love Jesus. Now that's a very popular thing to say nowadays. There's a, there's a type of Christianity floating around that would say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I'm going to follow Jesus by myself. It's kind of a thing, kind of like a temper tantrum. I'm going to follow him by myself. I don't like the church. Those people are messed up. Those people are weird and they raise their hands during worship and they can give you a list. But is Edwards on to something here? If he really says that a distinguishing mark of whether you're a Christian or not is if you love the church, what's, what do we say about this theology that's kind of creeped into Western Christianity that you can love Jesus and hate the church? Now, recently, publicly, a, a very prominent author actually came up. Um, I don't want to uh, use her name because I'm not about um, uh, criticizing her, but I just want to show that this is a very recent thing. She, she came to Christ. She was a prominent atheist and came to Jesus about uh, 10 years ago. But recently, she wrote this. For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. It's simply impossible for me to belong to those quarrelsome, hostile, dis disputious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years I've tried, I've failed, I'm an outsider, my conscience will allow nothing else. My faith in Christ is central to my life, my conversion from a pessimistic atheist, lost in a world I didn't understand, to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. But following Christ, and here's the heart of it, following Christ does not mean following his followers. 
Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and always will be, no matter what Christianity is, has been, or might become. You hear that? She's going solo. She's sick of this group. She's sick of us. She's sick of the community of, of faith. And she's going to follow Jesus all by herself. Now, there's two things that we're going to ask. One, is this okay? Or is Edwards right? That loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, loving the church, is a distinguishing mark, is a mark of a true Christian. And two, should, should we hear a little bit of what she has to say? Maybe there's something going on in the American church that might cause some of this to happen more than it ought to happen. So, to try to dig this up a little bit, let's turn our attentions again to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to start right away in verse 11. 1 John 3, we're starting right away in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. See that in verse 11? Verse 11 says that this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now what is he talking about there? The message that's, that you heard from the beginning. Now he uses some of this language right around, right around 1 John uh, chapter 1. And you, might, you already went through that. But what he's talking about here is the gospel. The message that you heard from the beginning in this language is, this is the gospel. But curiously, as conservative Christians, we rightfully would say, believe in Jesus Christ, his death. Believe in your heart that he, God rose, raised him from the dead. And that's, that's the message, right? And it is. That is the message. It's the heart of the gospel. But curiously enough, he says, the message that you heard from the beginning is you should love one another. So what is it? We love God and pursue Christ, believe in Him, or do we love each other? Well, the reality of the gospel is, is that it's both. Uh, Edwards, I love him, he would always talk about these things as these are, this is the logic of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, that things that Christians logically do, like help the poor, I have concern for the least of these. Uh, read scripture and, and meditate on his word and delight in it in prayer. All these type of things are logical outflowings of the gospel. And one of those is certainly loving the church, loving your brothers. It's the heart of the gospel as well. You can't separate the greatest commandment from the second that's like it. You can't separate the vertical from the horizontal. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the gospel is no different. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love his church. It's the message that we heard from the beginning. In historic Christianity, these two things have never been divided. Now he brings up Cain and Abel. This comes from Genesis 4. We're not going to go look back into Genesis 4 and read it, but just a summary. This is, these are some of the first sons of humanity. And the first dispute. And right away, one of the, 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 the sins after the fall that comes to a climax is murder. Right off the bat, Cain murders his brother Abel. And why did he murder his, his brother Abel? Well, Abel offers a sacrifice, or Abel's way of doing worship is of a right heart, and it pleased God. 
And Cain, when he worshipped through sacrifice, God was displeased with the manner of his heart and unrighteousness of his heart. So he loved Abel's offering, God loved Abel's offering, but hated Cain's offering. Now, if the story just ended there, we're just kind of neutral because there's still a little bit of hope at this point that maybe Cain will repent. Maybe learn from the example of his brother and start offering and worshiping in an acceptable way. But instead, hatred blossomed into murder. And that's what exactly hatred is at the end of the day. When you hate somebody, you think the world would be better without that person. And Cain took that literally. He took the matter into his own hands and said, that this, my life will be better without Abel, and killed him. So verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. We're going to get into this a little bit, but then in verse 13 it goes on to say, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Cain hated his brother's actions because they were righteous. And those that are, not unright- or those that are unrighteous, when they are exposed to righteousness, when they're exposed to the righteous actions of somebody else, they don't like it. The light is exposing the darkness, as it were. And the darkness does not like the light. Unrighteousness does not like righteousness. And, 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 and in there blossom up hatred that, that will climax always if it's not repented of and, and kept in check into murder. So it goes on here. Verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Christianity has with it the hatred of the world. Now, what the world is talking about here uh, is, is, is not the world collectively in, in every sense. When, when John uses the world, if you read the Gospel of John, he uses, he uses it diff- several different times, several different ways. He talks about the world as God loved the world. That is certainly referring to the world collectively. He also uses the world by talking about the creative universe, the creative world. But he also uses world here in a negative sense. And what he's talking about here is the structures and, and, and the institutions and the communities of the world that are hostile towards Christianity. That's what he means here. Context will determine which, which way he's using it. Here it's definitely negative. The world. The, the part of the world, the institutions, the community, the individuals that are hostile towards Christianity. And some of you might be new Christians. Some of you might be thinking about Christianity, might be skeptical. And one of the things I want to say right off the bat is that this is evidence that, that Christianity doesn't fix your world the way that you, you think that it will. We preach not a self-help gospel here. Christianity is not going to necessarily make your marriage better or put things in order in your life or give you a good career. That's in God's hand. He could give that. He could take it away. But one of the things that certainly that this text says is that if you become a Christian, part of becoming a Christian now is that the world's going to hate you. Those that enjoy unrighteousness aren't going to like the righteousness of Christ that's clothed on you and also transforming you. They're not going to like it. They're going to hate you. That's part of the call of Christianity. I just want to be upfront. If you're thinking about Christianity, I don't want you to be surprised, brothers and sisters, when you become Christians and you lose friends over it. You lose family members over it. I just came back from Kenya, and one of the things that the, that the Kenyan church does really well, they're right by Somalia. A lot of Somali refugees come over into Nairobi, and, the, and, then, and they're Christians. They're converted there. 
And they know it much more than the, than, than the American church does it. But when they become a Christian, they're hated. Hated like Cain hated Abel. Their family wants to kill them. Often this happens. And so Somali Christians have to depart from their own culture and their own tribe, and their own country, their own family, and then integrate into Kenyan churches. That's what they have to do. Why? Because the world now hates them. Because they're following Jesus. It's going to happen. And you have to ask yourself, if everybody likes you, it, it, it probably doesn't mean that you're a good Christian. It probably means you're a cowardly Christian. Because if you really preach the gospel boldly, people are going to hate you. People are not going to like the gospel. Now we're going to get in this a little bit, but there's a flip side to it too, that maybe the reason that everybody hates you, probably including your brothers and sisters, isn't because of the gospel either. It might be because you're a jerk. <laughs> Just be honest. We'll get into that here in a little bit and talk about that a little bit more. Let's keep on going here. Assurance of salvation. You see what he's trying to get at here? Look at verses four and follow, or 14 and following. You know? We know that we have passed out of death into life, life because we know we love the brothers, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now we've got to be careful about what's going on here. Verse 14 could be read, and it shouldn't be read this way, but some people will probably say that your salvation is contingent on whether you love the brothers or not, love the church or not, love the brothers and sisters or not. That's not what's going on here at all. We've got to be careful of something like that. Is what, what is loving your brothers, or what is because we love our brothers modifying? It's modifying we know. It's not modifying we have passed. If it's, it's, if it's modifying we have passed out of death, then it would be saying that you, in order to become a Christian, in order to inherit eternal life, you have to love your brothers. No, it's not saying that. It's the difference between assurance of salvation and acquiring salvation. How do we acquire salvation? We know Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ. Period. That's how we become a Christian. Graft ourselves, find our identity, find our purpose, find Christ as our ultimate treasure. Period. You're a Christian. But what he's saying here, well, how do you know that you are a Christian? You acquire salvation by belief in Jesus. How do you have assurance of salvation? Well, one of the ways that this text is highlighting is you love your brothers. You see that there? We know. We know that we are Christians. We know that we have passed out of darkness into light. How? Because we love the brothers. Because we love the church. Because you love your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Jesus taught this as well. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That comes from John 13, 34-35. Not only we know, but the world knows the gospel. Determined by how we interact with each other, whether we love one another. That's how the world knows if we are a Christian. And that's how you personally can have some assurance of your salvation. Do you love the church? Do you enjoy the church? And I, I do want to say straight up here that that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you have to love the type of church that, that meets your self-righteous expectations. 
I don't know how many young, young people I deal with that think it's okay to diss on the church and say, I haven't, been to, I haven't found a church that's quite good enough to my liking yet. Do you hear how self-righteous that is? They want the entire church to repent of their sins, but they won't recognize their own sin, primarily the sins of self-righteousness. Young men especially love to do this all the time with their puffed up little chests. I haven't been to church in years because the church is so corrupt. What did you expect? Even First John says if that you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. And you don't know God. Part of Christianity is owning up to the fact that you worship with sinners. And you yourself are probably the chief of one. This pastor is most likely the chief of one. And it's such a self-righteous accusation to say that there's not a church out there good enough. That's an unhealthy Christian at best. Or one that really doesn't have a distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit in his or her life. The church is messed up. We're full of sinners. And even practically, you need to understand this in marriage. You married a sinner. And your spouse married a sinner. What do you expect? Proverbs 31 all the time? No. Well, if you cultivate a community of repentance, of humility, that hates self-righteousness, you'll be able to put up with sinners a lot more. You'll be able to put up with sinners the way that Jesus did. So much so that he's willing to die for sinners, right? So this is what's going on here. He's saying, you know that you're a Christian. It says it as strongly as that. Look at the text. You know that you've passed out of death. You know that you have passed out of light. Or out of darkness into light. From, from, out of, you've passed out of death into life because you love the brothers. It's a distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to know if you're a Christian? Do you love the church? Do you love the church? First John doesn't sugarcoat anything from there, does it? Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Take that as a warning. Take that as a warning. You start to feel in your heart a self-righteousness towards your brothers and sisters that you're sitting next to right here, or even the church globally. That's not a path that's healthy to go down. You're like your brother Cain, if you start to think about that. And your heart's trajectory is towards that of a murderer. That's what First John says. That's what the Apostle John says. That's what the beloved disciple says here. I think we need to take them seriously. Now, hatred does not necessarily lead to murder. The text isn't saying that. But it is saying that murder is in the heart before it's in the hand. And even on the most simple basis, I already touched on this, that hatred is the desire to get rid of somebody. And in a sense, if you're, if you're a Christian that hates the church but loves Jesus, in a sense, you're like, the world would be better without the Christians. Well, what's the logical outcoming of that if the hatred becomes hot enough and passionate enough? You're on the path of Cain. You might never actually act out in that, but this is what Jesus taught himself as well. The hatred starts in the heart. A murderous heart starts with hatred. And then it goes from there. Hatred is the desire to get rid of somebody. So those that hate the church but love Jesus say, it'd be better off if the church was dead. Jesus, that's okay, resurrected, living. Shouldn't have ever built the church. 
Except implicitly just me. That, that's, a, that's what's in there. Except for me, I'm, I'm one of the better ones. It would be better for the world if I was around. Now what does authentic Christian love look like? Let's look at verses 16 through 18. Authentic Christian love look like. Verses 16 through 18. By this we know love. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There's a couple things I have for here, what authentic Christian love is, and this is really important to kind of distinguish it from maybe more of a worldly love. And, and I do this all the time. I'm, I'm guilty of this. We really use the, love, the word love a lot. Um, so it's kind of dulled its meaning. Because I'll say, you know, at the end of the day, I love bacon. And there's a sense that I do. Bacon is great. It tastes good. It's salty. It smells awesome. I mean, that's probably the only thing that smells better than coffee in the morning is bacon. And I've said it. I love bacon. And I said it now. I love bacon. But that's very different than saying I love my wife, Tracy. Or I love my daughters, Ava and Emma. So we need to have, and I even, even this happened curiously enough on the L last night when a group of uh, drunken Irish people came on the L and started singing bar songs and woke up my daughter and then two of them drinking Bud Light which is like, why would an Irish person drink Bud Light? We have Guinness. <laughs> oh no. It needs to be repented of. Um, the, and they were just making a ruckus and one of the, a couple of girls took a really good liking to Ava. She was sitting there and they're like, oh I love your daughter. It's like, Really? Bud Light talking. I mean, just, I mean, we use the word all the time is what I'm saying. I mean, and last night was no, no exception. So what is, what is Christian love? Because we're in a world that the, the word love is used a lot. That's the only point I'm trying to make. So let's, let's get to what 1 John wants us to think of love as like. Biblical, Christ-centered love. First, it's a gospel-centered love. You see that in verse 16? By this we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The gospel is the perfect example of what love is. This is what we're talking about. Biblical love, gospel-centered love, is the type of love that you're willing to die for. It's the type of love that you're willing to lay your life down for. And keep in mind here that Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. He didn't lay down his life for those that, he, that, that, that were, were close and tight with him. He didn't need to. He's close and tight in the Trinity forever. With, the, with his Father and with the Spirit. He had perfect community. His love was so awesome that he sacrificed himself for rebels. Joyless, godless rebels. Sacrificial love. And it's no, it's no wonder that Ephesians 5 exhorts husbands... To love your wife like that. Regardless if she's a Proverbs 31 woman. You love her. You love her. Sacrificially. Your love isn't contingent on her acting a certain way. Or some, uh, some unrealistic expectation that you've placed on her. You love her. Period. Sacrificially. Like Jesus loved you. Died for you. Even though that you were a sinner. That's the type of love we're talking about. And that's what we have here. He provides the example. The gospel provides the example of what biblical love is. The gospel also provides the motivation to love like this because we see our Savior doing it. 
He's the first runner. He, 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 he provides the example and he motivates. As we look to Jesus, we're going to be motivated to love like this. If you look at this five-step program or some type of self-help Christianity that has like the seven steps to being a more loving person, it's not going to work. I promise you it's not going to work. It's just going to make you legalistic as a Christian and look down on those that don't follow the five steps as well as you do. If you want to battle a lack of love in your heart, if you want to start loving the church, look to Jesus Christ and He'll change the way you look at the church. Because you'll realize what He did on the bloody cross for you. And you'll say, how dare I pass such a self-righteous judgment onto the church? You'll repent of it. And it will motivate you to love like Christ loves the church. And also, I love that the Gospel is verse 16 because the reality is, is we don't love perfectly, do we? It's just the way it is. The, the beauty of understanding what love is as, 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 the center, as centered and rooted in the Gospel is this is we're all sinners in desperate need of grace because we love imperfectly. That's just the way it is. So we come here with a humble approach, knowing that the perfect example of love is the very thing that saved me from being an unloving person. And hopefully that will motivate you now and give you, give you an energy, not by five steps, but by one step. Look at the cross. That will change the way you look at love. He uses a perfect example of sacrificial and humble love here. He gets practical in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So what's going on there? What's the practical example? He could have used many examples of how to kind of like hash this out, application. Here's the application. Do you give to the church? Do you give to the church? That's, that's, that's our application on a, on a corporate level. When your church is in need, because what your church is trying to do here, you're not, you're not giving it to an institution, you're, you're, you're giving it to a local community that's implementing those resources for the advancement of Christ's kingdom and the glory of God. Amen? That's what's going on. And Jesus will say that you give to what you love. So you're not giving to the church corporately? You don't love the church. That's what 1 John would say. You don't love the church if you don't give to the church. You let the, if you let the offering place pass every single Sunday, don't have any heart to give to the church, you really don't love this mission. And one of the reasons why, why, why often Christianity is like that is because we're, we're cultivated in consumerism. That, 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 that the life is all about what we can get, what we can buy for ourselves. And indeed, our whole economy is, like, is contingent on that we buy things, which is, which is fine. But it creates, if it carries over into Christianity, you're thinking that, well, what can the church give me? I don't want to give to the church. What can the church give me? Through preaching the word and fellowship. And all the resources are being spent on you and you're just consuming and consuming and consuming. You're a leech. You're a leech. That's what you are. That's what you are. I love, I love Francis Chan, I heard once, say, say it like this. You're, 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 in terms of the body of Christ, what you are is your appendix. You're not really good for anything. You don't really do anything. And, and at worst, you'll probably blow up and kill the whole body. That's what an appendix would do. Do you love the church? Well, you'll give your resources and your sacrifice what, what the Lord has given you if you really love the church. And I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel here. Get me, get me clearly. I hate the prosperity gospel. I hate it. And I saw it firsthand in Kenya. And it got my blood boiling. 
where you're doing a, a training of theology in, in the poorest slum, the second poorest slum and, um, and the biggest slum in, in, in Kibera, in, in, in uh, uh, outskirts of uh, Nairobi. And in walks a guy when you're, when you're teaching and doing ministry for those two days with people that don't have great shoes, rugged clothing. And in walks some schmo with a white suit, some wolf that has a gold Rolex on and drives a Benz, drives that thing in to the second largest slum in Africa. I hate the prosperity gospel, and that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about giving to the ministry so that the Lord will bless you financially. You give to the ministry because you worship the King, and you want more of Jesus, not because you want what Jesus can give you. You give to the church because you want more of Jesus as your treasure. It's an act of worship. That's what we're talking about here. And even individually, if you see a brother in legitimate need, if you see a brother in legitimate need, we're not talking about like some con artist that you're supposed to give money to and sacrifice. If you see a brother or sister in legitimate need, even on an individual level, do you give? He lost his, he lost his job. I don't know. He lost his job. He's short on his mortgage. You can help him out if you have the resources to do it. If you don't, John is saying you don't love him. You don't love him. That's what he's saying. If you have, if you have a student that his, maybe his parents lost their job and they can't even buy him his textbooks, and he's your, he's your brother in Christ sitting right next to you, are going to buy his textbooks for him? That's what he's talking about here. As simple as that. That's how it kind of plays out here. Little children, not, let us not live or love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In conservative Christianity, that is our lot. Our sin is that we can have all the doctrine. We can teach it really, really well. But doctrine, even if it's taught well, is lifeless. If it's not belief in action. If it's not actually doing something for the betterment and enhancing the worship of your brother and sister in Christ. It's dead doctrine. Live doctrine goes into action. You see that in there? Let us not love in word or talk. Don't just talk about love. Don't just talk about, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself, but you don't ever do anything. But in deed and in truth, you really understand the gospel. You really understand the depth of the mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ if it goes through an action and you actually start loving in practical ways. The example John gives, and you could have given more examples, is giving. Why does John want us to love our brothers and to examine ourselves to see if we're doing this? Let's look at verses 19 through 24. 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God. And God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. By the spirit whom he has given us. Verse 19, it says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and we are sure our hearts before him. 
This is referring to what he just talked about. By having love in action, by loving your brother actively, by loving the church actively, that's how you can have confidence. That's how you can reassure your heart before God. You want to know if you're a Christian? You want to, know, you want to have more confidence to approach God? Practically, start loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Practically, start loving the church. That's what he's saying. By this, by the love of the church, we know that we're in the truth. We can reassure our hearts before him. And it goes on, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. And he's just given two more motivations to examine your heart and making sure that you're in the faith and that you have the appropriate evidence that you are in the faith. And remember, it was worth repeating, isn't it? I'm not saying that if you love your brothers and your sisters, you become a Christian. I'm saying that loving your brothers and your sisters is evidence that you are a Christian. And by that evidence, you can reassure yourself that you're in the, in the faith. That you really are grafted into Jesus Christ. A couple more motivation. God is greater than our heart. He's saying God is the greatest lover. The greatest giver. Nobody has compassion like our God. His heart is greater than ours. We cannot even, we cannot even remotely compare our giving or our love for the church. Even, if, even those of us that think we love the church, not like God loves the church. His heart is greater than ours. And you can even think about this in the theology of the Trinity. He's always loved community. Christianity, from the start, has never been an individualistic faith at all. It's deeply personal, to be sure. It definitely is personal. But it's community. God Himself, in all eternity and forevermore, will be in community with Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Absolutely being satisfied in that relationship. Absolutely delighting in Himself as God, as community. That's the heart of the Christian faith. The heart of God has always been love for community. And it's like that because He's a triune God. He's the Trinity. One of the things that we see here is that there's a link that he makes that I think is worth pondering here. That your assurance of your salvation, practically spelled out in one of the ways that, that you love the church, will affect your prayer life. Do you see that in the text? Isn't that, isn't that crazy? He connects your assurance of salvation and whether or not you love the church with the healthiness of your prayer life. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what He pleases. You have confidence to approach God in prayer, communication, asking Him. And then it says this phrase, And whatever you ask of Him, if you're assured of your salvation practically by one way you love the church, Whatever you ask of Him, he'll, he'll give you. Now what is going on there? Ask Him anything and He'll give it to me? Ask for a girlfriend? Been single kind of long ways? Will He give that to me? Ask for a job? What, what is it talking about here? Like any, your prayer life, all, all of a sudden becomes magical and He answers every prayer request that He gives? No. No. There's two things I hear that, that, that I see here that's that where, why assurance of your salvation Practically working itself out and, and showing evidence of that by loving the church gives you confidence in prayer. One, it's evidence that you're in a relationship with the creator of the universe. There's a relational tone here. 
So how it works out practically in your prayer life is that you know what to ask of the Father and what He delights in Him because your intimacy with Him is, is evident in your love for the church. So since it's so relational, and since you're so close to God, and you love Him so much, and you, and you know Him so well, you're also going to not ask something of Him that He's not willing to give you. Your will and His will in a close, intimate relationship with God will become one. Will become one. And then what happens there is that we start to ask them that, that, that pleases our Heavenly Father. And it goes on to even say what the two commandments is, doesn't it? Verse 23, and this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So here would be the prayer. You want a prayer that God will answer? Because it's according to His will, and He's pleased to give you and answer your prayer, prayer requests according to, your, to, to His will? Do you have a problem with loving the church, whether globally or locally? Pray that God would change your heart. Repent. And say, God, give me a love for my brothers and sisters. And God will answer that prayer. Why? Because He delights in answering a prayer like that. He wants a healthy, vibrant church that not only loves vertically, but loves horizontally. He wants a church that not only obeys the command to love Jesus Christ, but also that has implications in loving the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. He will delight in that prayer request. And you can think of other ones. Lord, use me to bring people to salvation. Jesus delights in answering that prayer. Does your evangelism bomb every day? Start praying that the Lord will use your words and your gospel presentation and your preaching to transform hearts. Because that's what we need at the end of the day. It's not going to be our articulate words that's going to force somebody to believe, oh man, I just knocked it out of the park that time, didn't I? This person's going to have no way to refuse my awesome apologetics. No. God saves the heart. God opens the eyes of the blind. He delights in those type of prayer requests. And you can go and you can just read the scriptures. If you want to know what you ought to pray for, read the scriptures. Get intimate with God. Understand what His heart is. Understand what His will is. Then you know how to pray. And if you want confidence to approach God in prayer life like that, start loving the church. If you don't love the church, pray that God would change your heart. The last verse is here. It says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. A couple things quickly here. Abiding in God means that you remain in God. You're kind of, you're kind of in union with him, and you stay in union with him. From the first time you start to profess Christ as Lord, and, and, and to the day that you continue to profess him as Lord in your deathbed. That's what it's talking about. Those that abide in God. Those that are abiding in God. That's what abiding means. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God. One of the things that I think is awesome, and then it goes on to talk about the Spirit. This sermon, just so you're clear, is not pounding you over the head trying to say, be a better Christian, be a better Christian. Just do better. Just do this. Love your, love your church. No. No. I'm not trying to make you moralistic. I'm not trying to make you legalistic. And this is what the text is saying. You have a problem in this area? Your solution isn't doing better, but loving God more. Abide in God if you, if you lack the power and the motivation to love your church. Abide in God. Get, get power from the Holy Spirit. Not of in and of yourself, but the Spirit of God that lives in you. 
will help to give you the energy and the power to do and accomplish this task. This sermon is doing nothing more than say, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at God, get closer to Him. You have a problem with, with this evidence of the Holy Spirit? Look to the Gospel. Jesus Christ, on the cross, rose from the dead. Look at the glory of God. Not a five-step program, not trying to do better. You will do better by loving God more. Not vice versa. You don't get more of God by doing better. You get more of God by abiding in Him. Looking to His Son. That will change your heart and your attitude towards the church. This last verse also serves as a transition to what you're going to get next week. And this is about discerning the spirits. Discerning false and true doctrine. Spirits of the Antichrist or, or Antichrist. People and teachings and, and teachers that are against the gospel and preach false gospel. That one of the reasons why, again, you need to abide in God is so that you have spiritual discernment. You'll get into that next week, Lord willing. Let me close with this question again. Can you care about Jesus, but not his bride? Can you say that you love Jesus Christ, but hate his church? Is the answer clear? After marching through 1 John here? You absolutely cannot love Jesus and hate his bride. Don't ever justify leaving the church because that group is just a bunch of miserable sinners. You need to repent of self-righteousness and lay hold of the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what you need to do. I want to turn the lens, though, on ourselves just for a little bit here. Is Christianity forcing skeptics to leave in droves because we really are aren't centered on biblical love. That ought to be a question we ask too. This author that I talked about, I don't know where she stands before the Lord. I really don't. I don't know if she's struggling. I don't know if this is evidence of unbelief in the sense that she never was a Christian. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I, when I read it, I also asked the question, what about my church plant? What about our community? Because if you're not cultivating biblical love on a corporate manner, you shouldn't be surprised that you don't find unbelievers and skeptics in your midst. Now, some of them will hate you and they'll leave. That's just the way it is. But let them hate you for your message. Let them hate you for your sacrificial love that they don't understand. Don't let them hate you because you're individualistic. Or all you care about is cold, hard doctrine that doesn't have life in the hands, but is only in the head. I think it's a question worth asking too, isn't it? To turn the lens on ourselves and say, how are we doing corporately? How are we doing? We'll end with these lyrics. Derek Webb has a song called uh, The Church. This is what it says. And he's, and he's singing as if he is Jesus. So think about Jesus saying this as a poem. I have come with one purpose, to capture for myself a bride. By my life, she is lovely. By my death, she's justified. I have always been her husband, though many lovers she has known. So with water I will wash her, and by my word alone. So when you hear the sound of the water, you will know that you're not alone. Now I have long pursued her as a harlot and a whore, but she will feast upon me, and she will drink and thirst no more. So when you taste my flesh and my blood, you will know that you're not alone. This is how the chorus goes. There is, because I haven't come for only you. I haven't come for only you, but for my people to pursue. You cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love the church. You hear that? I think that's biblical truth. 
I think Jesus is saying to us this morning, you cannot care for me. You cannot care for Jesus with no regard for his bride. If you love the church, you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you'll love the church. And this is even how the, the end of time will end. Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The big party, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Big old party, big old, I'm, I'm glad we're eating in the end time. There's going to be deep dish pizza, Chicago style hot dogs, and even better than all that, Jesus at the head of the table. But who's going to be around you forever and ever and ever? Who's going to be around you? The church, his bride. And just think about this, husbands. Let me just bring this home for this last illustration, okay? Is it easy to have a good, solid relationship, friendship with somebody that has the ground floor? I love hanging out with you, brother. You're great. Your wife, she's really unloving. Dude, I really don't like your wife. I am not going to hang out with a dude like that. Maybe punch him in the face. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. That's not Christ's love. I want to. <laughs> but hopefully I won't. But that's a breakdown of the relationship. And just think about how much more Jesus Christ loves his bride. And how he is not pleased with this new theology in Western Christianity that seems to think that you can love Jesus and hate his bride. You hate Jesus' bride, Jesus will not be pleased with you. He'll be pleased if you repent of that and come to him, he'll forgive you and give you grace. But you stay like that, the warning of Scripture is, is you're like your brother's king, you're like your brother king, and on the path to being a murderer. But Jesus is greater than all of this. Let's pray. So Lord, we want to see your bride as you see her. Yes, in her imperfections. Yes, in her sin. But also, Lord, we want to see her as glorious as a global community saved by grace and covered by your righteousness. Lord, help us to be sacrificial in our love. Help us to repent from self-righteousness and selfishness by how we view our brothers and sisters in Christ. And help us to serve and to die for one another so that we could be, have the confidence before you in our prayer life and in worship. Because we know that this is evidence of the Holy Spirit living in us. For the glory of your name. Amen.